So we've been talking about turning this website platform on for a little while now, and then we got delayed, got the lawyers involved, and uh, wouldn't you know it, you have to have terms and conditions, and they have to pour over that for a while. But uh, we're past it. The site is on. And you may have noticed from one of our introductory videos that we put out, there's a there's a kind of quote or a, a, a caption that says, why do Australian pitchers not throw as hard as the rest of the world? And interestingly, uh, Tyler Anderson, our founder, uh, had had been chatting with me when he was at the uh, international tournament, under-18 international tournament in Thunder Bay. And Australia was, uh, I don't know if they'd played the US, but they had been watching the US team play and uh, every single guy on the pitching staff threw considerably firmer than any Australian guy. And yeah, we were going back and forth texting and, and wondering, well, how would you figure this out? Well, we've actually got access to the pitching coach of that team, uh, Ricky Meinhold, who is, uh, has had a career in professional baseball, most recently with the New York Mets, and is now going over to career as the director of pitching in the KBO uh, pitching coach. So we thought maybe we could start the conversation and talk about that stuff and get some of his insights as to why the rest of the world throws harder than Australian guys and what can we do to fix it? Ricky, thanks for sitting through my extremely long introduction and uh, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, before we kind of dive into your um, experience on the, you know, you've got, got a reasonably long resume. I'm, I'm honing in on your under 18 US team experience, but you've actually got some experience playing baseball in Australia. So we kind of always should start there. What, uh, what brought you to our shores and, and what was your experience like? Yeah. So, um, I was in the middle of my minor league career and, uh, looking to play winter ball, um, in the off season of 2009. And, um, I had a contact that got a hold of me and, um, I got a random call from a, I'll, I'll never forget where I was sitting. I was sitting at my best on my best friend's couch, and I think we were watching a fo- American football game. And I got a call from an Australian number, and I picked it up, and I was like, "Hello!" And that somebody, obviously an Australian, was on the other line and spoke to me. And I thought it was like a like a telemarketer telling me they were selling me this, that, and the other. So I, after like two seconds, I was like, "Okay, this is wrong number." I said, "Excuse me, wrong number," and I hung up. Well, that number called back like multiple times, and uh, I was like, "Okay, this is weird." So I picked it up again, and it was Mark Haylock, and he was a representative of the Goodwood Indians and the, and the coach on the South Australian team um, and an associate scout for the San Diego Padres. And he was like, oh, we're interested in bringing you aboard, um, coming over to Australia and playing winter ball. And long story short, I ended up doing it, but I apologized immensely over um, hanging up on him at the beginning. But um, we got a call, and so I, I – I had a, um, a scout that was the mentor of mine and, and unfortunately just passed away in the last year, um, Bill Brick. And he, uh, he got, he is a, uh, worked in the front office with the San Diego Padres and he, um, basically got the connection there. And anyways, um, signed on to came over for the 2009 season and played, uh, for club ball team for the Goodwood Indians and then played in South Australia in the Claxton Shield and, was one of the best experiences of my life, but also was very intrigued on doing it because I have family that lives in Australia and um, I hadn't seen them since I was probably 15 at that time. And I was probably 20, 23 ish um, at the time of winter ball. And so uh, a combination of things they've never seen 
watched me play, obviously, and so it was a, it was a lot of different factors that went into it. But most the most factor was I wanted to continue my baseball career and, and continue playing in the winter, and so uh, the stars lined together, and, and was fortunate enough to experience that for the for the 2009 winter season, and and something I wish I could have done multiple years. And I had some family things that went on that had to get me away prematurely, but um, I was very fortunate for that time, and it was probably one of my best baseball experiences of my life to this day. So we probably should unpack your resume a little bit as well. So you, how long were you in the minor leagues for? Uh, three years. And then did you transition immediately into coaching or what sort of, what led you in that direction? That's a very good question. And we could probably talk about that for a while, but I'll make it short. I, I quote unquote retired slash got released for the millionth time and um, uh, uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I got a random phone call from a, um, he was the president of a college in South Carolina, which is on the eastern coast of, of the United States. And, and you, you hung and up he on was him? The dean. Uh, no, I, uh. <laughs> I knew that number. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, definitely didn't hang up on him, but he was like, um, he was the president of the college in South Carolina. Well, he was the dean of the business school at the college I went to. So we had some sort of, of like familiarity. And um, he said, I need a pitching coach. Are you interested? And I was like, at that moment in time, I was like, I have nothing else to do. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Um, I think I'm going to go to med school. Maybe not. I think I'm going to go get my MBA and start my business. Like, maybe not. I, I just didn't know. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to lean into this. And he's like, well, I don't really have that much money for you. It was like a $5,000 job. And I was like, well, it's $5,000 more than I had. And thank God I took that job because it obviously lined up my career going forward. And I'm very fortunate that, um, that worked out, but, um, I started coaching. Yeah. Probably two months after I stopped playing and, um, ended up taking, going to a division two school in South Carolina called Coker college. Now it's called Coker university. And I think I showed up and they were like 10 and 35 and didn't have a recruiting class that first year we went 500 and we were tremendously better on the mound. And then that next year we went to the college world series and lost the university of Tampa uh, to be eliminated from the College World Series, and they eventually won the national championship. And ironically, this February, that team at Coker is going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame at the university, which is super cool for those kids. And, and I was grateful to be a small part of that. But uh, while I was there, I got in, not in contact like my way of doing this, but a scout with the St. Louis Cardinals was following our club and looking at our players. And obviously, I was the assistant coach, and he had my email and he, a long story short, he basically called the Cardinals and said, hire this guy. And I got hired. And that started a career in professional baseball. And unfortunately and gratefully, uh, I still go in. And I'm, ex- I'm very grateful for that. That human being who's the director of player development with the Baltimore Orioles now. Um, but if without him, I, I would never be in this position that I'm currently in. Okay, i got to unpack a few things because this, <laughs> this is first question. How on earth did the dean of a business school know to call you? Are you, are you? Have you just alerted everyone to the fact you may have been a, a nerd and had pretty good grades? Is that why this guy knew? Yeah, no, far, far from that. I went to a really good academic school, and I was like the first baseball player to play professionally. Right. So um, that that just stuck. And so, really, like getting a little deeper. So my best friend who played baseball with me at the school. He was like a videographer for that school. He was getting his MBA and left where we went to school to follow this president. And so he was the best man of my wedding, ironically. But he uh, 
he basically told the dean or the president of this college saying, hey, Ricky's available. He's done playing. Like, you should call him. Ah, right, okay. And he did. Right. So, and that so changed everything. You're not a nerd. Okay, that's that. And then <laughs> a nerd. What, okay, the, my second question is, in one year, in your first year of coaching college baseball, you did enough with the team for a professional scout to recommend you to a professional organization. What, in your first year of coaching, what did you do to stand out? What 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 were some of the small things you did that wow. put you on the radar of a, I've a never, scout? I've never been asked that question before. Well, it's not um, first Australian podcast, mate. There's a different level of intelligence down here. <laughs> that, that's very true. I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> um, I probably failed a lot. Um, I just, I don't know. I had a vision when I, when I got into it, like – what kind of coach would I want to play for? Yep. And I thought I knew the answer to that. And then I realized I didn't. And through that year or two of me coaching, I figured out, holy smokes, I have a ton to learn. And I just paid attention to really smart people around me. And I worked for the guy who I worked for at that school was there for 35 years. He did the program all by himself, basically, until I got there. He had a couple of assistant coaches in his, in his tenure there, but not really, not anybody really full-time. So I was like his first full-time like help. And so I paid attention to how crazy he was on a, like a extreme level, but then all the things he did extremely well, like I was paying attention. And there was things that he, like, he worked at a small school his whole entire career. Well, he did work 10 years as an assistant coach at TCU before he got this head job. But with that being said, he was, although he was a crazy man, and I love him to death and I, I'm very grateful for his mentorship to me. Like he knew a lot. He's still one of the top two or three baseball minds I've ever met in my life. And I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of people, people hold really high in this game on the intelligence and, uh, um, just acumen of the game. Um, and so he's still up there for me. And so I just paid attention to him and how he did it. And then also just ask questions to people around, like not just baseball coaches, but football coaches and basketball coaches and soccer coaches. And just kind of like, once I realized that it's not necessarily about the sport, it's about the human being. Then like it became a little bit more natural to me. And then the baseball side, I've always been told this and then I didn't figure this out until relatively recently, but like I just see the game a little bit differently than most. And so I tried to figure out why I see the game a little bit different um, than most. And then I tried to work on building my acumen and my understanding of the little things in the game and then challenging myself um, to learn as much as I could. And I was very fortunate that early on, especially when I was the college coach. And then also when my first few years with the Cardinals, when I transitioned to the pro side, I was thrown into the fire a lot. And I it was like sink or swim. And I just tried to swim. And um, I was fortunate a lot of people invested in me. And I'm just a product of those people investing in me. And I think that's kind of at the end of the day, the only answer I can give you that is, like genuine because I have no idea. I'm just trying, I'm still trying to swim. Um, I'm just trying to do it and treat people the right way as I do it. So um, that's, that's the best answer I can give to that question. That's a, that's a tougher question than it sounds. 
Yeah, I know. I've got a, I've got a gift every now and then it comes out. Um, yeah, it's do. interesting. Um, it's interesting. The <clears throat> you hear you do hear a lot of people say I wanted to be the type of coach that I'd want to play with, and and yeah, it's very hard to articulate. Well, what type of coach would I want to play with? And and I think I didn't realize this until I had my own children. But you tend to fall into coach to coaching people the way you were coached, and and traditionally coaching has always been. Let me just point out what you're doing wrong. And a lot of times, sure. let, me, let me bark at you when you do something wrong, and 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 just and it's it's almost criticism. And then when you, th- particularly when you've got have your own kids, and you know a lot of our kids are snowflakes, and and you know we wrap them up in cotton wool. But you just quickly realise, like I, d- I don't like people being negative to me now, and I'm 45, and I don't like criticism. Right. And so why on earth would we do that with kids and younger players? And and you know, and it's not to tell them they're great every day, but there's there's the, the effects of positivity are so much more dramatic than just telling someone you screwed that up, you did it wrong. And, yeah, it's really interesting sort of uh, just seeing how coaching and mentoring has changed in the game, particularly a game of baseball which is rooted in tradition, but you just see a lot more positive affirmation and kind of letting players try and figure things out themselves. And, you know, I remember you take BP and you have a coach standing behind you telling you on every swing what you're doing. And you're like, I can't fix right. this with you doing that. So, yeah, it's interesting how things have evolved. So we'll keep um, we'll keep going. So you get into pro ball. What what was that journey like? And you said you'd been thrown into the fire. What sort of – what do you mean by that? It's like, hang on, I don't know why I'm a pro coach. I've got to figure this out. Or how did you kind of wind your way through professional baseball? Yeah, I think what you just said was um, kind of my thought process and somewhat still continually my thought process on things. But, but um, I was hired for a job that they created with the Cardinals and they there was a mass amount of people and it was before anybody did this. And now you're seeing it all over Major League Baseball where they're doing these developmental coach positions. Well, um, I legitimately could say like title-wise, I was like the first – uh, developmental coach type deal. And so what it was, was it was a crash course into all things baseball operations. So from scouting to player development, it was, Hey, think or swim, like figure this out. Like you're going to, you're going to be put in an environment to learn scouting, um, how to evaluate players, um, those kind of, kind of foundational things to what professional baseball is all about. And then also the coaching side of things. And obviously I had, a very small amount of coaching experience going into that job. And albeit it was on the college side of things, but it's still relatively the same age bracket that I would be dealing with in pro baseball. They would just be a little bit more Excel excelled athletes. And so I basically had to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. And so that first year, it was kind of a crash course in all things, baseball operations on the professional baseball side of things. And so at the end of that year, they asked me, hey, Ricky, what would you like to do? And I was like, I need a job. So whatever you would like to give me, I'll do it the best of my ability. And like, I've always been the person, and this is something I've really channeled the last probably 10 years of my life. And I think it's something that is very valuable that I think people should pay attention more. We live in the world of specialization. And, and I'm not saying like specialization sport to sport, but I'm saying inside your sport. Like, how specialized are you? Well, I'm the, I'm, I feel like my strength as a baseball person is adaptability to all different departments inside of baseball in general. And I think that's because I was fortunate to be 
put into some environments that I wasn't really ready for. And going back to the sink or swim things, I had to figure out people like things that people were doing that they've been doing for 30 years. Like I was hired to be a major league scout right after that, right after that first season, like away from coaching. And it was really good for me because I needed to know how baseball players were evaluated to the nth degree. And obviously did I see, um, things as a coach and have I always evaluated players of course but like you get to break it down in such a finite kind of position that it's really it challenges your your belief system on like how good players really can be and how good they are currently and how they project and all that stuff and then then you open up the um, Pandora's box into all things data and um, biomechanical analysis and things that are objective that um don't really have a heartbeat and so my my strengths were in reading the heartbeat and understanding people now i gotta go objectively and understand things that don't have a heartbeat that are just factual or have trend lines or have projections and and understanding when you go down a rabbit hole and you're getting nowhere and when you go down a rabbit hole and you strike gold and so being able to like balance all those different dimensions has helped me be the person I am. And so I read a book and this is a shameless plug to this man, but it's helped me a, a ton, but there's a book called range by David Epstein. And I think it's something that people should read. Um, if they're into reading, obviously, um, about like maximizing your individual skill set and not pigeonholing yourself and only being good in one area. I'm not saying like there's this thing that they say in the book and everybody's heard it especially in America is like you're a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Well, I'd rather be a master of, um, uh, master or master of, I'd rather be a master of one than a master of none. Well, I'd rather be good at a lot of things and maybe I'm not the most elite at, at one singular thing, but I'm pretty darn good at a lot of different things. And so I've channeled that into my own persona of, of like a human being from a father to a husband to uh, baseball coach to a baseball man and everything in life that I want to be the best I can be in a lot of different ways. And although I might not be Jacob DeGrom elite at one thing in life, um, I feel like I can be strong in a lot of ways that might outweigh that person who's in their own little silo that can't kind of get out of that silo. And so that's something that I've tried to do as a baseball professional in, in this game is to try to be great at a lot of different things. And, and I've been fortunate enough that I haven't been pigeonholed into being one singular thing. And maybe that's held me back from X, uh, or like the, like the end goal of X, um, situation. But like, I feel a lot more invigorated every single day going to work, knowing that I've got, I can think multiple different ways and look through multiple different lenses. Cause I have the experience and the education and the, and um, an investment into a lot of different things in this game, which has helped me be more well-rounded. So that's a long-winded answer, but I think that's kind of where my, my heart lies in this, and that's kind of how this has all evolved into where I am today. Well, when you master parenting as one of your many things you're going to master, let me know. We'll put a book together. I think we could make some money. I got two. Yes. I have two of them, and there's, I'm way far away from that. So any oh. tips, I'd be yeah, yeah. thrilled to learn probably the wrong guy to come to on that one don't don't necessarily have a handle on that either um so I, this is the other as you're talking so you finished pro ball you finished playing in 09 and 
in a short period of time, you're now sort of immersed in the game doing a bunch of stuff that I'm always interested. You know, you look back and go, geez, I wish I knew that. I wish I, I, wish I knew then what I knew now. But you've gone from, yeah. <clears throat> it, it sounds like you kind of, you know, you said you were released and retired multiple times and it sounded like, your, you know, the minor league career was not what you wanted it to be. And but then you kind of get into this part of the game and you think, geez, I, I'm always interested in the evolution of the game in such a short period of time. Like what, <laughs> do, do you ever look back and go, God, I wish I knew that stuff. And how would it have helped you? Or do you just, your, was your career not, was never going to happen? Oh, no, for sure. I, I think any um, above average athlete wants as much information as they can to be the best they can be. And I think if I lived in the times that we live in now, like, and I train the way players train now, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, I guess this is very confident in my abilities or in my mental state of my abilities. I think I could have been a totally different player. Mm. But like, I realized. Like I stopped playing in 2011 and I realized in 2011 and I told my parents this too, that if I was 25 years old and I wasn't in an organization, major league organization moving forward and moving vertically in the organization, I'd make a hard decision and and live with it because I needed to start my life and, and try to be something great. And I stuck to that, which is crazy. I actually did that. But at the same time, if I like, living in the world of data and biomechanical analysis and all that stuff. If I knew the athlete I was or my identity from a data perspective as a pitcher, Holy smokes. I could have, I had, they say this figuratively in, in the States a lot. I had balls bigger than Texas, meaning I competed with everything I had. And if I had one little edge to understand myself, um, as a pitcher, um, that could make me a little bit better. I would have, I would have done that. Obviously, um, that stuff wasn't available when I played. So yeah, I kind of kicked myself a little bit saying, man, I grew up, my parents, you had me at the wrong time. You should have had me five years later, 10 years later. But at the same time, I'm grateful for my experience because I think, and this is maybe speaking a little too far, uh, maybe too far. I don't know how to say it, but I think, I'm the last, my generation, my, I'm, I'm going to be 36 years old. I think my group of athletes are the last generation that understands quote unquote, the old school or the, the old way of doing things, quote unquote. And then, uh, I'm also lived in, and I was young enough to understand like the tech technology of things and like growing up, like with like the dinging in my ear from the internet. Like I understand where the world has come to and how far it came in the last 20 years. But like I can bridge both sides of that. And I think the kids nowadays, even guys five years younger than me or 10 years younger than me, like they didn't have some of the struggles that we had when I was younger, but also I'm, I'm very fortunate that like we, like I still am young enough or understanding enough or was taught at a younger age the new world that we're coming into and social media. And like, I remember Facebook was a thing when I was a freshman in college. Like that was when Facebook first came out and it was like, Oh, what's this Facebook thing? Well now Facebook like is a big deal or whatever. It runs the world kind of deal. But, um, that's the cool thing about it. It's like my generation is we, we bridge both gaps. And so I'm fortunate that I, I going into my professional life and teaching my kids things and, in all that kind of things that we're living in in 2021 that like it's not like foreign 
and to me it's somewhat familiar um this thing called tiktok that all the kids are into nowadays like i'm, I'm out on that but <laughs> at the same time like i'm still young enough to understand like where that started and what that's about and i'm fortunate that like i can relate to a lot of different things with these players whether they're 40 years old or whether they're 18 19 years old it's it's pretty cool so i'm at a unique time where i was raised or born in a unique time where i've been able to bridge both gaps and 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 feel confident speaking from from both sides of the spectrum for sure on that yeah, you're still about 10 years away from screaming, get off my lawn at kids riding past your house. So. I'm close, though. Yeah, you're okay. I'm slightly closer than I thought I was. So you, uh, how do you end up in the big leagues with the Mets? Yeah, great question as well. Um, so when I left the Cardinals, um, that was a hard decision for me, um, both personally and professionally. Um, they, they treated me unbelievably well. Obviously I stated that they put me in situations to grow and that's all I've ever wanted. But, um, professionally the Mets offered something that I didn't necessarily have completely with the Cardinals. And that was a leadership position. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier. It's like, my biggest thing is like, is the human is the person is influencing people and being a, a light for them in, in their life. And so like in a leadership position, it's, it's put, it puts you in a situation where you're put on, you have this enormous responsibility. And I, 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 I kind of yearn for that a little bit. And so I wanted to see how I faced that kind of challenge. Um, and I thought it was the right time. And I knew what I was getting myself into when I came over to the Mets with a slightly turmoil that has been clouded over the Mets for the last, 15, 20 years and not necessarily people influenced, but just kind of the culture that was around. And I knew that it was going to be a challenge. So I kind of want to dive into that. And there's a lot of great people with the New York Mets organization. I'm very fond of a lot of people there and we'll miss working with them um, consistently on a daily basis. But they, they offered me a chance to lead a group in, 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 a, in a department that I felt very confident in being a positive influence both on and off the field. And so I leaned into that pretty hard with my family and we did that. And so it, it was apparent right when I got there that the major league pitching coach, Jeremy Hefner and I, uh, were very consistent on a lot of things in life, um, from how we taught on the field to how we taught off the field to the person that we, we were trying to be every single day on our personalized and professionalized. And so once I kind of got to know him and understood his vision, it was very similar to mine. And so that relationship grew and, and there was opportunities for me to leave um, the Mets pretty quickly and get major league opportunities with other teams. And it just, uh, it, it just presented itself an opportunity with the Mets. And so there was times when I was with the Cardinals as well as uh, my early on in my Mets career, that major league positions were uh, presenting themselves, um, not the, the, specific like handed the position over but to interview for positions and and with that in baseball it's kind of a slippery slope if you let somebody interview you got the chance of potentially losing them well the Mets didn't want to lose me um that way and so they put me on the major league staff which I'm very grateful to Louis Rojas and, and the group and Jeremy obviously Jeremy Hefner and the group to um trust me enough to be on that staff and I'm very fortunate that I was given a lot of responsibility with the major league team and and also running the, 
entire minor league organization as well on the pitching side of things. So I was giving opportunities to lead exactly what I wanted to do when I came over there. And so I'm very fortunate that they believed in me, but that's kind of, it, it didn't come out of nowhere, but it wasn't something I was like pushing the pedal down to make happen because I was very comfortable just leading the group and trying to build a, a culture of um, developing elite pitchers, whether starting pitchers or relievers. I wanted to build pitchers that helped us compete to win a World Series every single year. And so we're well on our way to doing that. And I think they're going to be in good hands going forward. But it kind of, I wouldn't say it came out of nowhere, but it was something that was presented to me and I was very um, fortunate to be a part of that staff and, and obviously definitely had an unbelievable time with them and, and learned a lot from each and every coach on that staff and player on that staff and so very fortunate to get that opportunity. Being very complimentary here, it sounds like you're padding your way for another job potentially. I, I know a lot of major league teams listen to this podcast so well done. Um, the uh, I'm interested. The bit that I'm interested in is, you know, you you talked about the evolution of a ga- of the game and the the training and the programs that are available to pitchers now that weren't necessarily around ten years ago. So now you're around Jacob Degrom, and you know who is arguably the most, you know, the highest level of pitcher in the game at present, and Noah Syndergaard and a bunch of other electric arms. I'm really interested to know how do they go about it. And I'll be devastated if you say, oh, DeGrom just rolls out of bed, eats a bowl of Cocoa Puffs and, you know, lightning comes out of his arm. I'm assuming that's not the case. But, yeah, I'm, re- I'm just fascinated to know what are those guys put into play to be able to do what they do? And if you could step through some of just – you don't have to go specific on each guy, but just, like, what does a day in the life of a, an elite major league pitcher look like and how do they perform the way they perform? What are the things they're doing that others may not have thought of or be aware of? Yeah, that's a really good question, and and it's I I joke, but if if Jake was listening to this podcast, um, which I hope he does for your sake and and for Australia's sake that he invests into that, um, um, he would kind of laugh when he said he rolls out of bed and does it because he is an unbelievable athlete and he's very gifted in a lot of ways. So he has some God given talent that is unbelievable. Um, but he definitely is one of, or if not one of the most. Um, focused and intentional workers I've ever been around. Um, and so that like in a nutshell to give the short answer, uh, what makes elite pitchers, um, be who they are is they know what they're really good at and they're intently focused on maximizing what their strengths are. And so with that being said, um, with the likes of Noah and and Jake and Marcus Stroman and, and, and Carlos Carrasco and, and pitchers like of that nature all the way down to the rookies and Tyler McGill and David Peterson that we had on the starting staff and then the bullpen guys specifically. Um, there is a, what they learn in their minor league career all the way up to their major league career is to maximize their individual strengths and to intently focus on that, but also to find the routine that suits their body as an athlete and, as a person, what maximizes their ability to post every single day. And so um, I think the biggest thing for me to answer your question more, a little bit more broadly is everybody's intently focused on their individual training regimen. And that is that when I say training regimen, it goes 
not just into the baseball side of things, but how to make maximize the athlete that they are. And that looks a little different for each and every guy. And fortunate enough in major league organizations, there's people to serve that for every single player. But at the same time, the ownership part with the players is at, is the most important part of that whole puzzle is you could have the best strength coach, the best nutritionist, the best athletic training staff in the world. But if the player's not intently focused on their own career and the ownership in that, that is, that is, um, it's a pipe dream to get to where they won't want to be at. So I think what, um, I've noticed with those guys and, the, and granted those guys are established major league players. Um, and so they've, failed and, and succeeded and failed and succeeded at the major league level. So they know themselves so well. Um, it's more important to me as the younger players to not just be a drop in the bucket or a, a guy who gets a cup of coffee is those are the guys, those first couple of years in the big leagues are, are the trans, they can be transformational to a major league career because now you're at top stage and you got to realize is what I've been doing exactly what I need to be doing to have success at this level and I think when you have a a coaching staff and a support staff with all the the positions I mentioned earlier to support that um, human individually then you can get those answers pretty much on a daily basis but if you don't have the ownership piece in your own career it's a pipe dream. It's you're just, you're hoping and praying and that's not necessarily the best way to go about your professional career. And so for me, the best thing I learned about major league players from guys who had 15 years, 10 years, eight years to guys who had 13 days to 140 days is everybody cares about their individual self, but they care about the, they care about learning as much as they care about, um, proving themselves. And so for them, they take the experiences that they had in the minor leagues and, and they bring them up to the major leagues and they test them. And then that those tests, they either pass or fail and then they learn from them. So they're the type of people that because of that ownership piece that they have in their career, they're able to assess themselves very quickly to be able to know what's going to play and what's not going to play and then create a plan to fix it. And so I think um, the biggest thing on top of that is they make adjustments better than anybody in the world. And so Jacob deGrom, I'll give you a short example of Jacob deGrom. In 2020, we had the COVID year, obviously everybody was dealing with it all around the world. And um, sometimes the starting pitchers wouldn't travel on the road because the COVID scares and all that stuff. So they would come to the alternate site. Well, I was fortunate enough to run the alternate site with a, a few other people and Jake and, uh, and some of the starting pitchers would come down and, and, Specific on this this instance, um, Jake didn't have a, a great outing in his mind or in, in everybody's mind compared to what he normally does. He didn't strike out 15 and only give up a hit and go six innings and give us a chance to win. He gave up a measly three runs or four runs, I think it was, and went six innings. And some people might say that's a good start, but to Jake's standards, obviously, him being the best in the world, it's not, not okay. And so... I asked him specifics of like, hey, uh, what's your reflection? He came and worked out with me, so I was like, hey, Jake, you pitched yesterday. What was your what was your reflection of the outing? And he broke it down to the to the like very finite part of his outing, and which is what most big leaguers do because they're that aware of what they're good at and what they're not so good at, and where they need to make adjustments. And 
at the end of it, man, we don't need to go into specifics of that, but he just didn't have his best stuff that day. And that's a normal thing for major league pitchers. Some, if, if you have 32 starts a year, I would say if you ask a, a major league pitcher who makes 32 starts a year, how many times are the 32 starts that you have your best stuff or were you, or did you feel the best? And they might say five. And then, then the other, there's probably 10 where you felt like, eh, I have two pitches today or one and a half pitches today. And then there's another 10 where you might have like your body, your stuff looks good and you feel good, but your body, your body's just not, you, you didn't feel a little out of whack in your delivery. And then there's that other five where you're hoping and praying you just get through an inning. Um, and so that balances out the thing. Well, basically, uh, he, uh, I asked him his reflection on that quote unquote bad outing. And he gave me his, 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 his breakdown. And I said, okay, what are you going to do about it? And he's like, nothing. I'm going to stick to my routine and we're going to get it done today. And that was it. And I was blown away by how simple he was because like most people, and we're around baseball players and baseball players knowing like you're 0 for 4, 4 punch outs, you're going to try to, as a hitter, you're going to try to revamp your whole swing because you're like, oh my gosh, I failed. I struck out four times and I need to fix this or I'm going to be terrible. Well, in the big league, obviously there's pressure enough to perform every single time you're out there, but your routine and what you do as an individual and the ownership you take in your individual careers, like that got you there. So like one bad outing is not going to change the whole thing. And so that was what I learned from him really quick. The best in the world got his brains beat out in his mind and didn't have his best stuff. And he didn't want to change a thing. He just wanted to focus on and go back to it. And that brought me back to what I believe in very much. So is like this game is played by human beings with a heartbeat that the person matters in it. It's not a robot. It's not a video game. It's the person. So like that person needs to be as stoic as possible or as turn the page quote unquote as possible to the next day because yesterday's over and you can't do anything about that. And the fact that he sticks, sticks to his routine, no matter if he punches out 15 and gives up no runs, no hits and goes nine innings or he gets his, face beat in and, and doesn't pitch his best and goes five innings, gives up five runs and his team loses. He knows what he's good at because it's intently focused on his routine and what makes him who he is. And so that's what, in a nutshell, what I learned about major league players is they intently know who they are and how to be the best they can be. And don't get me wrong. Do they ask questions to be better and, and do they want to be better every single day? Yes. And that's what us coaches are there for. And that's, I would say I pride myself on, and I know the coaches that are around were, were there. Our jobs is to be there for them and give them what they need when they need it, not try to be the smartest person in the room all the time. And so I, um, I learned a lot about being ready at all times uh, with major league players to give them a nugget when they need it, but also not be the guy who's running down the hall to go talk to Jake. Say, hey, Jake, I got this, I got this, I got this. They don't need that. He's the best in the world. When he wants something, he'll let you know. But also, getting to know the individual player, you'll know when they need something. And they might not verbally tell you, but they'll tell you in their work. And so that's what your job as a coach to figure that out and figure out when to push and when to pull and when to speak and when not to speak. And I think that's kind of the fun part of working with the elite is like you can break it down to the smallest level because you know they just need this little bit or they don't need this little bit at this time to be the best they can be. Now, admittedly, I don't rub shoulders with elite athletes um, every day, but one of the things from being around pretty good athletes is 
the really, really good ones tend to have this unwavering self-belief. And I'm interested to know, because coaching has changed for the better, probably in a more in terms of being in, being more positive, when you're around these guys who, you know, as you said, he's just I'm not moving off what I know works, and and I believe in myself. How much of the how much ego pumping do you have to do as a coach, or because they believe in themselves so strongly, are you it's just a pat on the back and you know go get them, or how how often is a coach having to play psychologist in the modern game? I, that's a really good question. I think it's not as much as you think, and I'll say this, and this is why: social media, fans, all that stuff—they give them all the pumping they need. I'm there to tell them what's up right away, whether it is positive or it is negative. They they don't want, pardon the word, but they don't want a bullshitter. They don't want somebody who's just being there just because they're they just want to be there. Like I wasn't there just to be like, hey Jake, good job. <laughs> hey Jake, good job. Did I tell him good job? Of course. And, and that's something as a as a human being, I strive to do with my kids more. Cause I told you at the beginning, earlier, like I come, I was born in the old school. So like to motivate, like, and I learned from, I learned how to coach through trying to figure out who I wanted to play for. Well, it's funny that I, that it comes out like this. Now that I say this is I was the, the player that I wanted a coach to get into my face and tell me how terrible I was because that motivate, motivated me to be, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. Conversely now, I don't do that very often and I don't want to do that very often because I don't see that as a huge benefit. Don't get me wrong. If a player needs it, I'm going to do it. And, and they'll tell me if they need it by me getting to know them and them telling me exactly what they need at times. But like the positive things, like I wasn't there to tell Jake, Hey Jake, really good slider. Like he knows it. That's why he's a big leaguer. Like you have to believe in yourself, especially in New York. There's when fans can turn on you on a dime, if you, don't do what they would want you to do. You got to have this inner belief. And I think most, like you said, most elite athletes have that, but you'd be surprised. Some don't. And so you have, you have to understand who you're like, I, I, my biggest saying it's, it's, I've said it to like nauseam to be honest with you, but my biggest thing as a coach, it's not about me. It's about them. And I'm just trying to meet them where they're at. And if they're mentally not there and they don't feel as confident as they can be, I need to be the guy to get them to be confident. And then flip the script. If they're already confident, I need to tell them to get off their little high horse because they need to be better. Like I, that You have to have that understanding as a human being first. And that's where you can be a really good coach is meeting your players where they're at. And I think that's something in the big leagues that's put on this, it's magnified to the nth degree because you're in the big leagues. And it's, it's different when I go to a backfield in A-ball where the kid, it's 150 degrees in Florida, in, in, in Port St. Lucie or Jupiter or wherever, and the kids, there's no fans around, and they're just grinding. That's a different concept. You, you, might, need to get, you might need to hit them in the teeth just a different way, comparatively speaking, when you're in a stadium filled with 50,000 people screaming your name. It might feel a little bit different. And so I think you, like the moral of the story is you got to meet the athlete where they're at. And um, that could be different. And it doesn't matter if their name's Jake DeGrom or Marcus Stroman or Ricky Meinhold. Like, you have to understand who you're working with. And once you figure that out, then you can coach the player and give them what they need when they need it and know when to push and know when to be 
the pat on the back or the little tap saying, man, you're, you're, you're going to be great. This is this, you, you've done a really good job today. Your, your work has been solid this last week. Da, 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 da. Or, Hey man, you need to pick it up a little bit. Like you hold yourself to this standard. Well, so do I, like you're not, you're not pulling yourself to that standard and we need to get better or, or this is not going to be the result you want kind of deal. And you just need to know when to verbalize that or need to uh, hit them like what the timing has to be perfect for them because you could you potentially could lose players um with just giving them a bunch of bs because they're gonna be like oh that ricky guy he just fills me with a bunch of crap well i don't ever want to be known as a coach that does that the one thing i could say is as a coach whether you liked it or not i don't necessarily know if i really cared but i want you to know that i do care and that i'm gonna tell you exactly what i think whether you like it or not, positive or negative, that's what I don't care about because I think you'll respect the fact that I'm honest and I'm going to tell you, hey, you're doing a really, really good job. And you know, man, if Ricky's telling me he's a really good job, then he's telling me the truth. He, that's what he's believing in. And that's what, and I can trust that. And then, comparatively speaking, when I kick him in the tail saying, hey, you're not doing very well, they know, like, oh crap. Like, Ricky's telling me this. It's, it's true. Like, this is it's coming from his heart he cares about my career that kind of thing so i think that's kind of the moral of that whole story so <clears throat> the art of the podcast is to um actually answer the question that you started off asking which 45 minutes ago i posed the question why don't we throw as hard as um other countries in the world so let's get full circle here we've spent a good period of time sort of proving to the world that you actually know what you're talking about so now i actually want you to give us some answers is having spent some time in australia a a while ago now but um having kind of gone through and got to the highest level and now going to overshape an asian franchises pitching um side of things what what would you recommend to young australian players what are the steps they could take to start to increase the the output and the you know it's not just velocity but you know we need we produce athletes down here what can young players put into action what can coaches do to help develop arm strength and you know what are some of the fundamental things a young player who may be 12 13 14 who may have fallen asleep this i know kids don't have the attention span to get this deep in a podcast but what are the things they could implement to sort of really start to build out arm strength and pitchability and those types of things what would you recommend what are the fundamental things young players should be focusing on i would would say this kind of jokingly but seriously you need to pay attention to this podcast as well as and the people not myself specifically but the people that you do this podcast with and the information that's given on this website because obviously i know tyler um pretty well and um know where he what he stands for and where he's coming from and the information that is going to be provided is going to be world and so I would pay attention to that. But first and foremost, I think you'd have to be, you have to care enough and be curious enough to get the information that you need and ask the right questions. So I wouldn't just take the information that's available on social media or the internet or, um, or what you hear from a coach. I would ask questions why and, and see where that comes from. But at the same time, you have to understand who you are and what you want to be. And so you have to train that way. You have to train you have to train to be powerful. Like you, you, you mentioned that you, Australia does produce world-class athletes from rugby guys to, to swimmers that um, my dad swam. I swam when I was a kid, Australian swimmers are world-class and I've always been it's like, there's, there's ways to, um, 
there's definitely opportunity to be a world-class athlete. Now, world-class baseball players, it's not just the information that you're hearing. You actually have to train about it. And so the information provided through this this website and, and, and your group is going to be world-class. And so paying attention to that is huge. But to get to like the nitty-gritty, you have to maximize the best athleticism you have. And from a baseball-specific thing, you have to train that way. From you asking, there's there's a science part of, of pitching specifically, and then there's a art uh, side of pitching specifically, and they both can go hand in hand. To be the best athlete you need to be, you need to train that way. So you need to get as as your your best strength conditioning program you can do. Um, with the young kids, for me, it's just maximizing your athletic uh, athletic ability. Once you get older and into your, I forget what the schooling is there, but to like your comparable like high school age kids here in the states you got to get you got to maximize your athleticism as who you are up until that age and then you need to train to be who you want to be as a baseball player like there's obviously in australia there's opportunity to play baseball all the time and get instruction from um from we call it little league and all that stuff but i i mean i ran camps when i was with goodwood for young kids so the opportunities are there in australia you just have to lean into it and then and kind of understand what your coaches are talking to you about, but also have fun with that. And that fun and that understanding can lead to you wanting to pursue this and, and maximize the athleticism that you you've created for yourself. But then once you get to an age where you need to start getting in the weight room and training this certain way, you need to take that serious. And so training, training to be explosive and training to be the best athlete you can be is paramount to being the best baseball player you can be from the art side of things. You gotta you gotta watch baseball games. You gotta see what the best do. I know there's there's many Australians that have played in the big leagues, and I know that um, one of the best pitchers in the game right now is Australian and a relief pitcher, Liam Hendricks. Watch him pitch. Watch see what he does and goes about things. Obviously, he's transformed himself as a pitcher throughout his minor league and major league career to be who he is uh, currently for the White Sox, but there's an art to what he does and why he's so successful. And I would pay attention to that. And I would ask, and I would surround yourself with baseball people around you from your friends that you play baseball with to the coaches that you get to work with. And I would ask him questions about what, what Liam does and, and why he does certain things and then watch games and see how players um, go about their business. And I think there's all this information on, on like social media from Instagram to obviously I mentioned TikTok earlier and then, the internet with all the websites that are around driveline baseball is a huge deal. They've done so many good things for the game, but um, there's information around, but you have to ask the right questions when you're watching or, or looking at this information to be able to um, kind of pull it back to being actionable to maximizing like understanding and development of your baseball mind, as well as your baseball athletic ability. And so like, all that together, the biggest thing to do to train to be powerful and explosive, you have to love this. And it's just like anything. You have to be able to, as much as it, like, you got to have fun with it because you're not going to do anything for a long time if you're not having fun with it, in my, in my opinion. You'll probably piss out on it in a few years if it's, if it's not exciting to you. But there's the little things. The one thing that I love about baseball that I think is familiar to a lot of people have been in the game for a long time is like, I like the littlest things about the game. And just like you have 
cricket and Aussie rules football and swimming, like there's little things that make these athletes the best of the best. And I think in baseball, whether you're an infielder, outfielder, pitcher, catcher, whatever, you got to find the one thing that you really like doing. And, and I, I quote this a little bit. It's very paraphrased, but um, Kobe Bryant, probably one of the best top five NBA basketball players in the world, best basketball player in the world, that kind of deal. One thing he did was he outworked everybody and he focused on the fundamentals more than anything. And I think that as a baseball player is extremely important. But in the same breath, like he was one of the most explosive athletes of his generation in the game. And so I think he trained to be that way. And I think there's there's ways in the game. Like I, I watch a lot of cricket because when I went to um, Australia, like I would be glued to the TV watching it. I know it takes forever, but there's so many similarities from cricket that there is in baseball. And I think you can channel that and be curious on like, what are those similarities and how you can kind of put two and two together to be, to make you a better baseball player. But um, to answer your, your answer your question, very long winded, I know, and I apologize. You have to train to be an explosive athlete and those specific programs should be available um, through Tyler and this group. If not, like we, I, I'll help provide them as much as we can. But um, you have to train to be the best athlete and be as explosive as you can. Explosive as you can, because at the end of the day, that's what makes the U.S. Um, kind of. Well, that's what, the pitchers that we had on that USA team in 2017. Like you go back to it. Yeah, they they played the game a lot and they understood it. But they they're they're big. They're strong. They're fast. They they are. They throw a lot of long toss. They they do certain drills and from plyos to weighted balls. Like I, I'll say this, and this is a caveat to this: is you have to be strong enough to be able to allow your body to get the benefits of weighted implements in your hands. So if you're a, a 12, 13 year old kid and you want to be bigger, faster, stronger, well, it's not by picking up a weighted ball and throwing it 150 feet, and that's how your arm's going to work. Your body has to be ready to throw a weighted implement and to maximize the things that weighted implements do for you. And so like as, as terrible as it sounds, you got to get in the weight room. You got to, you got to get into a strength conditioning program that maximizes the athlete that you are. And if you don't have the uh, capabilities to do that, you need to find ways to be um, a better athlete, play more sports, play as many sports as you possibly can. Don't specialize too early. I hate like the world that we live in in America is, kids are specializing at eight nine years old fortunately in high school years so my 14 to 17 13 to 17 year old years of my life i played football basketball american football basketball baseball and i swam in high school and so i played basketball and baseball in college so i'm a big believer in playing as many sports as you can to maximize your athleticism that you have and eat right and all that stuff and all that stuff goes into it but at the end of the day, I think that is um, the mic drop moment is kids need to have fun at what they're doing and train to be the best athletes they can be. And if, if there's not abilities to be given those guys the programs to be provided to do that, then we, as an organization, we got to find a way to help that so kids can, can maximize their athleticism and their abilities to be the best they can be. That's a good plug. That's why the platform exists. Um, and it your sort of philosophy aligns with what Tyler's trying to implement, so that's uh, reassuring. Um, Ricky, 
we've had you for a long time. Really appreciate it. All the best in uh, career. It's going to be probably an eye-opening experience for you, and um, I'm sure you'll make uh, a success of it. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to check back in with you and, and get a sense of what that experience was like once the season's up and running and you might have a little bit of time to chat uh, along that journey. So thank you very much. We really appreciate it. You got it.